Welcome back to another episode of Believe in the Press Row. Today brought to you by our friends at Sleep Envy. We are thrilled, honored, humbled, and all of the above uh, to be talking with <clears throat> the longtime uh, co-voice, if you will, of the Toronto Blue Jays, Jerry Howarth. Jerry, how are you? Well, very good, Jonah, especially after that introduction. Thank you very much. Well, it, it, I'd be remiss if I didn't at least open the way with, with one of the way things that really I always admired about the way you called games. So I'd have to ask you how your wife, Mary, and how your two sons, Joe and Ben, are doing. Well, thank you for asking. Um, Mary and I have been married 49 years, and next year will be number 50. And we've been blessed. We have two sons. Uh, they're now in their early 40s. Uh, ben lives in Chicago with his wife, Megan. They have uh, two young boys. Colson is four. Emmett is two. And then Joe and his wife, Kathy, live right here uh, near Etobicoke, where we are here in uh, Ontario. They're about 20 minutes away, and they have a, a young son who's two and a half named Wesley. So we're blessed. We have three young grandsons. We have a lot of fun with them on FaceTime. And, of course, Joe and Kathy come over here on a regular basis. So I like to say we are very blessed. Well, that's great to hear, and it is uh, amazing to hear your voice. I, I got to tell you, these are certainly not usual times, and it would always be good to hear your voice. But, you know, as we hit the middle of June, we should be hearing baseball voices, and we're not. So to hear yours certainly warms the heart. Well, thank you very much. And um, I retired at the end of the 2017 season, and my voice became a little bit of an issue. I had cancer surgery uh, now three and a half years ago, and the stamina wasn't there. Um, and I decided, Jerry, after 36 years, let's go out on top. And that's what I was fortunate enough to be able to do. And, and over time, um, I've regained some of my strength. But uh, overall, uh, right now, I actually am kind of honored to say that um, I have a, a retirement game. It's called Duplicate Bridge. And it's very much like my career where you get up, you study, you prepare, uh, you work with a partner, you play a game for in a club three hours, and then online now uh, with no club activity, two hours. And Joan, I pretty much play um, once a day. And it's, uh, it's very gratifying for me, but it also allows me to enjoy my life without using my voice, uh, where I just don't have what I used to have and uh, am blessed with. So the, the secret to life in a 49-year marriage is to play bridge every day. Is that the answer? <laughs> well, people say to me, Jerry, you play bridge every day. What about Mary? And I say, Mary who? <laughs> and we kind of, we go from there. But um, I've been very fortunate in my life. Um, I was blessed with what I like to call the competitive gene. And not everybody is, and, and that's okay. But for me, it's always been a matter of competing against myself, trying to be the best broadcaster I could be, the best partner on the radio I could be, uh, the best bridge player and partner I can be as well. And all those things are very good, but I also have the common sense and the uh, natural overview to say, wait a minute, people first. And so my marriage has always come first along with my two boys and grandsons. And with all my free time after that, then I work in uh, enough to compete. And, and I love that. Well, you, uh, Listen, like you were in our ears for 36 years and um, an incredible accomplishment. I, I don't know if anyone will ever get to that number of years consistently with one team ever again. I, I just can't, I can't see it happening given the nature of the business right now. Can you? 
Uh, well, uh, I don't think so. And there are a couple things that come to mind when you say that. And first of all, thank you very much. I appreciate that compliment. But for me, not only was it 36 seasons, which was pretty incredible as it was, but it was with my first and only team. There have been other broadcasters in the history of Major League Baseball who have spent time with one team and then another, and then with their final team, surpassed 36 years. But I think I'm in a very rare select group that first and only team 36 years. And that's when I look back and I kind of pinch myself and I say, Jerry, did you actually do that? And, and the answer is yes. And, uh, and so I'm kind of surprised myself when I look back. The other funny thing is, uh, Jonah, and you'll love this, uh, of course, with the great Vin Scully out in Los Angeles, who's retired now as well. After the uh, season, um, I think it was the 19, it was the 2014 season, I had uh, completed 33 years with the Blue Jays, 33 of my 36. Last game of the season was at home at the Rogers Center. So I'm driving back to Etobicoke here on my own, and I, kindly, uh, I kind of mentally patted myself on the back, and I said, Jerry, way to go. You just completed 36 seasons. You should be so proud of yourself. And right then, uh, I kind of burst out laughing, saying, oh, wait a minute. Vin Scully just completed his 66th year. That's twice the number of years I've had. And uh, it was a nice way to relax going home and putting everything into its proper perspective. So I didn't know this until I did some research over the weekend, but uh, you actually had a broadcast career starting before you came to us. And I didn't know that you started just down the road from where I am right now, down at uh, the University of Puget Sound. What was that like? Yes, uh, I graduated from Santa Clara University in 1968, had a degree in economics and philosophy and uh, uh, no particular career desires. Uh, but because of the Vietnam War, uh, I went through ROTC and graduated as a second lieutenant, went to Frankfurt, Germany for two years and, uh, and then came back and went to law school for really one and a half semesters. And after I left law school in the middle of my second semester, I wanted to pursue something in sports. And one thing led to another, and uh, I, I ended up in sports, but I wasn't sure exactly what I wanted to do. Well, after two years of raising money for my alma mater, the University of Santa Clara, they hired me as their first fundraiser. I had met my wife, we got married, and we went up to Tacoma, Washington, because Doug MacArthur, who uh, just celebrated his 91st birthday, we're still friends, he's up in Tacoma, he heard one of my tapes and said, Jerry, would you like to come to the University of Puget Sound right here where I am the athletic director? For years, I have done the radio, football, and basketball broadcasts of our Puget Sound loggers, and I know you're interested in radio. Why don't you come up here, raise money for our athletic department like you just did at Santa Clara, and you can become the football and basketball radio announcer to begin to start your career. I said, Doug, thank you very much. That's exactly what happened in September 1973. I got on the radio there at the University of Puget Sound. The football team was playing this fabled Slippery Rock team coming out from Pennsylvania. It was billed as the rock against the sound. That was my first ever broadcast on radio, and I got a little lump in my throat then. And now, uh, the old proverbial apple in your throat. Doug was right there kind of guiding me through my first um, broadcast. And after two years of doing that and broadcasting AAA games across the street with the Tacoma Twins, that really started my career. Yeah, you're being a little light on the details because what's, more, what's most incredible about that entire thing <laughs> that you've left out 
is the fact that someone had the audacity to tell you that you didn't have a voice to do sports. And I've heard some of those games from back in Tacoma. And Jerry, you sound identical to how you sound today. And if nothing else, if, if content doesn't matter, you 100% have the voice to do sports radio. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. And, uh, and what happened was at the University of Santa Clara, when uh, they hired me as their first fundraiser in the, uh, fundraiser in the athletic department, uh, my first month in, I'm sitting at my apartment. My wife and I, as I said, just had just gotten married. And um, I heard one of our football games on the radio, just a small FM station. And I said to myself, Jerry, you're going to be a career fundraiser. What a great way for someone new to enhance your fundraising career by getting on the radio and let people hear you and say, Jerry, come on in. Let's talk money. And I had envisioned the radio as a, a means toward becoming a full-time career fundraiser. Well, I went to the broadcaster who was a Santa Clara alum, uh, donated $1,000 a year to do the play-by-play. And I just asked him if I could get on the radio with him. And he said, no. I asked him uh, another time. He said, no. And I didn't say anything. I was surprised, but he said, no. And then um, about uh, a week or two later, I'm going down the steps to Buckshaw Stadium. And here he comes up the steps and he stopped me. He said, Jerry, I know that you're disappointed that you were told no by me that you can't come on the radio. And he said, both of us have the same problem. And I said, what's that? And he said, neither of us have a major league voice. <laughs> I said, okay. And um, I kept walking down the stairs and he kept walking up the stairs. That night, Jonah, I decided I was going to change my approach. The next day I went out with our wedding money and I bought a tape recorder and a microphone and for the next two years, as I raised money during the day for Santa Clara sports, I broadcast all of our Santa Clara football and basketball games. And they were awful. I would take the tape back home, listen to it at my apartment, and realize, Jerry, you've got a long way to go if you want to become a broadcaster, but this is a good start because you can only get better. I was really right there at the bottom. I remember one time, first broadcast of a basketball game I did, we had a point guard named Alan Hale. And in the first half alone, I said, Alan Hale, 41 times. And I said, Jerry, you can do better than this. How about Hale up the front court? Or the six-foot-two right-handed uh, dribble uh, comes into the front court and moves to his right, and uh, Alan looks to his left, looks in the post, whatever it was, add some variety. Well, for two years, all I did was football and basketball games. The irony was I never taped a baseball game, even though I grew up playing baseball in California. And that's what later led Doug MacArthur in his office at Puget Sound to hear my basketball tape, turn it off after about five minutes and say, you are our new football and basketball radio announcer. So when I look back, I don't have uh, any ill will toward the uh, Santa Clara broadcaster who is still in the Santa Clara area. Uh, I've never looked at life that way. I look at benchmarks and when he told me that, it was a challenge because I always wanted to be a writer for Sports Illustrated. I've always been able to write, it's come naturally to me. And honestly, um, I thought someday I would be a feature writer for Sports Illustrated. But when this fork in the road came, and as Yogi Berra once said, when you get to the fork in the road, take it, uh, I took the challenge of becoming a, a broadcaster over something that I did naturally well, and that was writing, and it certainly worked out. Yeah, so you, so you end up going to Salt Lake City, Utah, to do one thing. That doesn't work out, but you then you then become – you get into group sales for the Utah Jazz 
as well as doing radio in Salt Lake City. And somehow that parlays into split duty between what you're doing in Salt Lake and part-time duty with the Toronto Blue Jays. How does that happen? Well, just to put it again, uh, kind of line everything up, uh, when I went to Tacoma and worked for Doug at Puget Sound and uh, broadcast two years of AAA baseball, again, this is another benchmark when I look back, and I've had, Jonah, so many wonderful benchmarks where it's almost like divine intervention. God said, okay, we'll put you here. Okay, now we're going to go over here, and let's come over here. Well, coming over here was simply the fact that after my second year in Tacoma, the um, the general manager of the AAA Salt Lake team, the AAA club for the Angels, had a stroke. And uh, so I reached out to a friend of mine who was with the Angels organization. He had heard me broadcast AAA games, Tom Summers. And I said, Tom, um, I'd love to come to Salt Lake City to not only broadcast the games, that's my first priority, but run the team. And he said, let's do it. So he talked to the owner. The owner hired me, and I went down to Salt Lake and for three years, not only broadcast three more years of AAA baseball, but ran the team 12 months a year with promotions and all kinds of advertising, and it was just a wonderful experience. Then after that, I began to look around and see how so many other people were getting to the major leagues with a wider resume than I did. And so I left uh, broadcasting, and I started to work for the Utah Jazz, and uh, then later when I worked for a radio station for the first time ever in my life right there in Salt Lake, I get a phone call. I'm in the production room one day. I get a phone call. And uh, this woman at the other end is kind of noisy. And she said something I couldn't believe. And I said, oh, wait a minute, um, could you repeat that? Because I thought it was a kind of a crank call. She said, my name is Sue Rayson. I'm with the Hupex Sports Network in Toronto. We have heard about you. We actually heard a tape of one of your broadcasts, and we'd like to know, would you like to go to Tiger Stadium July 4th, 5th, and 6th for the July 4th weekend and broadcast those three major league games with the Blue Jays because Tom Cheek's partner, Early Wynn, is going to Dodger Stadium for an old-timers game. And when I heard it the second time, I knew it was a, a real call, and um, that became uh, – my first major league broadcast, July 4th, 5th, and 6th there in 1980. No audition, like nothing. Like just, we've heard you, we like you, please show up in Detroit. Well, the real, the real break I got uh, was the fact that when I was in Salt Lake City uh, broadcasting those three years of AAA baseball, our manager was Jimmy Williams. Well, at the end of the 1978 season, uh, Jimmy stuck around for one more year, 1979. I had left, but he continued to uh, manage, and I could see major league ability in him too. Well, wouldn't you know it, after the 79 season, the Blue Jays hired Jimmy as their third base coach. So he leaves AAA, he goes to the Blue Jays, and then that's when the network, uh, and I had sent them a tape, but uh, they got the tape but no resume, so they didn't know anything about me other than the tape I had sent to the Blue Jays. They asked Jimmy about me. Jimmy gave them a glowing recommendation about who I was off the mic and on the mic as well. And that's when they gave me that call and they found out where I was working there in Salt Lake City. And um, that started my career. But if it, because Jimmy went to uh, Toronto as a Blue Jays coach, that opened the door for me through them. So you walk into the booth, famed. Is it, was it your first time in Tiger Stadium? <laughs> yes, it was. Uh, my wife grew up in Kalamazoo, Michigan, so uh, they always said that uh, Toronto was Detroit's playground. But I grew up in San Francisco, so really uh, my whole life was right there in California 
until I moved to Washington for those first two years with Puget Sound, then the next uh, five years in Salt Lake City, Utah. So, yes, I, uh, I'd never been to Tiger Stadium. I'd heard about it. And um, as it turns out, when I walk in there, uh, first game on Friday uh, in a big league ballpark, Tom comes over to me, Tom Cheek. I'd never met him before. He hands me a recorder, and he says, Jerry, welcome to our broadcast this weekend. Why don't you go get a pregame interview? And I said, thank you, Tom. He handed me the recorder and the microphone. And in AAA, in Tacoma, we played Spokane every year, and they had a third baseman named Roy Lee Howell, who now was starring at third base for the Blue Jays. So it was an easy uh, call because I had met Roy. I knew him at the batting cage. And I went over, and I introduced myself again. He said, Jerry, congratulations. You're at the major league level. He said, "Uh, I'd be happy to do a pregame interview with you. And that was the first major league pregame interview I ever did, but it was so easy because I had known Roy those previous years. So you go back upstairs. You're now in the booth with Tom Cheek. You're at the corner of Michigan and Trumbull. And in the booth next door, I would imagine, is one Ernie Harwell. How how awe-inspiring was that? Well, it was very awe-inspiring because um, down on the field, when I was, and I didn't know anything about Ernie, um, when I was down on the field, uh, taking the lineups down in the dugout, I get a tap on the shoulder and I turn around and he says, in that famous voice of his, and I'm not going to try to duplicate it, but uh, Jerry, welcome to the major leagues. Uh, I understand that you're going to broadcast this weekend series, and uh, it's my pleasure to introduce myself to you, Ernie Harwell, and I just wanted to wish you the best and have a great career, and uh, I hope this leads to many years. And I found out later just what a prince of a man Ernie was, and uh, later he became one of my best friends in the entire 36-year career that I had, and uh, I just can't say enough about what he meant to me at that moment to take that time and come over and see a perfect stranger and with open arms welcome me to the major leagues. That just made me feel so relaxed. And his partner was Paul Carey, and a perfect partner for Ernie because Ernie was an institution and uh, so humble and so modest and such a great Christian man. And Paul was a perfect compliment. Ernie did the first three innings, Carey did the middle three, and Ernie did the last three. But Paul, with that deep voice of his, always was uh, there as a wonderful partner and friend of Ernie's. So it's interesting, you, you mentioned Ernie's faith. And, and I'm going to be honest with you, in doing my research over the weekend, when I hear somebody say, or I read about somebody saying that they heard a voice, um, I usually get nervous. Uh, <laughs> in, in the baseball context, I immediately think of the movie Field of Dreams, so that makes me feel a little bit better. Uh, I, I understand that you too have heard a voice. Yes. Uh, in When I was in Tacoma, um, and of course I graduated from Santa Clara University, a Jesuit school, and I'm going to pause right here because I always thought I put Santa Clara on the map, but it was Steve Nash who did that years <laughs> later. And uh, I always tell people I went out of my way through Chuck Swirsky, who was a Raptors radio announcer at that time. I said to Chuck, can you please introduce me to Steve Nash when the Mavericks come here? And after a Mavericks game at the um, ACC, uh, sure enough, Chuck took me down to the Mavericks uh, dressing room. Out comes Nash. And uh, I kidded him saying, Steve, um, <laughs> just what I said to you, uh, I, I thought I put Santa Clara on the map and we both laughed. And, uh, but he was a tremendous uh, friend too. And later I got to know uh, Steve uh, because I would go to practices here with the Canadian national team. But overall, um, it was just such a, a good time and a good experience to know that uh, 
you're doing what you're supposed to be doing. And um, so at Santa Clara, uh, a priest there, Father John Shanks, was very instrumental in developing my spiritual life. Uh, my parents had divorced. Uh, I had a real issue with my mother. And um, all that uh, helped a little bit when Father Shanks would tell me, don't look at your mother as she is or as she should be. You take her as she is and um, not the way you categorize her and just love her for who she is. Well, anyway, things like that uh, kind of added up. So uh, I, I began to develop a real spiritual life and a Christian life through Santa Clara University. But to answer your question, I'm in Tacoma. And my first month, I'm broadcasting games for the first time ever, AAA games. And it's a night game at Cheney Stadium in Tacoma. There's a ball hit down the left field line foul, so I call it. And right then in my voice, uh, in my head, I hear a voice that says, without me, this is meaningless. Well, I continued to call that at bat the rest of the game. And I took that echoing through my mind back to my place there in Tacoma. Without me, this is meaningless. The next day, I drove down to a church in Tacoma. I walked into the empty church. I got on my knees and I said, Lord, I hear you. And um, for the rest of my career, however long that is, wherever it takes me, I will offer up every broadcast to love, praise, and serve you. That was Father Shanks' um, words to all of us there as students. Let me love, praise, and serve you with every broadcast. I hope it's entertaining and informative for you and for the audience. And thank you for letting me do it for as long as that is going to be. Well, with five years starting there and 36 here, uh, 41 years, I was able to devote and offer up every game to God. Well, I, I, you know, we'll pivot a little bit. It was always my understanding from afar that uh, that really helped. Or do you generate relationships with certain members of the Blue Jays? Um, who, who shared the same devotion, if you will, and it was a real bridge uh, between you and the players. Well, it really was. Uh, first of all, in an ego-lending profession, I never put my ego on my sleeve. We all have to have egos in our lives to get where we are, but you don't have to wear it on your sleeve. You can certainly be modest, unassuming. Uh, I look at Ernie Harwell that way and so many others. But you're right. I would go to the players and talk to them about their spiritual life. And uh, many of them were very uh, good in that area. Paul Molitor comes to mind immediately, along with so many others, too. And um, that the, they would just talk about what they were doing in terms of God, not themselves, their family, uh, offering up their day uh, as just kind of a thank you, as a real blessing. And when I started to bridge those gaps a little bit like that, and go to chapel services and um, on Sunday we would have a chapel service a little kind of a service before batting practice uh, all those relationships became even stronger and um, it lent itself to the fact of why we were doing this it wasn't for us it was as I said to inform and entertain the audience I was a middleman I'm down on the field taking what is down on the field up to the booth and as the middle person sharing stories which became kind of what I wanted to do on the radio of what these people's lives were all about. And that's what I took great pride in as a broadcaster. Yeah, I mean, I think what was uh, apparent as a listener for all those years, uh, we knew it, but you didn't sell it. It was your thing. And clearly you had, you had a, a relationship with the man upstairs and that helped, again, develop relationships with the players. What always came across, uh, to me anyways, and I listen to you a lot, 
and uh, I think you put me, you know, along with, you know, probably Joe Bowen, you put me to bed more often than my parents over those years. Um, <laughs> you made every listener think that, or feel, I should say, that you were talking to them. Uh, from the, the infamous, or, or famous, I should say, you know, hello friends, which is how you kicked off every broadcast. Um, and then as you told stories, it wasn't just a story, but, and that's why I kind of jokingly asked, specifically by name, how your wife and kids are. Those, that's how you told your stories. And uh, it just, it, it felt immensely personal when you called the games. Well, I appreciate that, and that was my goal. And uh, for years, working with Tom Cheek, um, we were not former players. So we didn't take any liberties as far as, oh, they should have done this, they should have done this. No, uh, we, weren't, we weren't there to uh, school people on, on the broadcast of how the game is played. So we looked for ways to make it entertaining and informative and call the game as it took place. And then Tom, unfortunately, had his cancer and passed away. October the 9th, 2005. So we're talking now uh, 15 years ago, which is hard to believe. But after that, then, um, former players came to sit down with me. A uh, couple years with a young Canadian, Warren Sawkew. Six with a very outstanding catcher with the Houston Astros, Alan Ashby. One year with Jack Morris. And then I encouraged him to go back to Minnesota to be with his son and his second marriage. Uh, his son was eight years old. Um, you know, don't, don't come up here every summer. You'll lose miles and you want to just be part of his life. So go back there with the twins and find something there. That led to Joe Siddle uh, from Windsor coming into the radio booth with me uh, over my last four years as the broadcaster. And I have to say, Jonah, that uh, aside from Tom, which was Tom and Jerry, pretty iconic all those years, Joe was the best partner I ever had from this standpoint to talk about what you just talked about the broadcast. I called the play by play, but I was in and out. And then I just backed up because Joe was so insightful. He was so articulate. He was a catcher. They're always the best broadcasters and managers because they see the game from behind the plate, looking out over the entire field and they're managing people, especially uh, pitchers, of course, but everybody else. And Joe and I had a wonderful four years together, not only as friends on and off the mic, but it came across, too, that Jerry would just talk about the, uh, the base hit the right center field or the pitch to a certain hitter to get that hitter out. And because I was smart enough to back off and then let Joe have the, uh, the mic, he took it and ran with it. And from the very start, I could sense in Joe Siddle he was going to be an outstanding broadcaster. He was articulate, insightful friendly and together we formed a great team and again jerry like you're underselling things because if not for you joe doesn't get to where he got we had him here last week and i did not know admittedly about the tragedy with his son um you reached out to him in those dark hours after and sent him a note when you send him the note, did you have any inclination at all or any hope slash desire that he would end up in the booth with you? Well, to put it in perspective, um, uh, I knew he was Canadian. I knew he was from Windsor. I knew he had uh, caught in the minor leagues for years, in fact, 13 years to play all of 73 major league games. 
which to me was very awesome that uh, someone would devote that much of a career to baseball with so few games at the major league level. It told me right away he was not an egotist. He was not about himself. He was about helping other people. Uh, Secondly, uh, whenever the Blue Jays would play the Tigers uh, at Comerica Park, I'd go in there, and I had heard that Joe had come across from Windsor for home games to help in batting practice and help with the players and the pitchers, and he'd be in uniform, and I would say, hi, Joe, how you doing? That, That was about it. I didn't know anything more about Joe than that. Well, in February, um, you know, well, let's see, 17, 16, 15, in uh, February of um, 2014, I read in the Toronto Sun from one of my real good friends, writer Bob Elliott, that uh, he wrote that Joe Siddle's 14-year-old son, Kevin, had just passed away from a non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, and uh, he'd gotten it in August, and uh, it's, it's one of those cancers that many times you heal from it and uh that they thought too that after two or three months that kevin would be one of those young kids who would recover from it but then all of a sudden it aggressively took another form and uh kevin passed away um i think it was right around february the 5th well bob wrote about that in the toronto sun so i read that and because for all those years i had at least gone out to uh, the field to say hi to joe siddle and just say, hey, how you doing? That was about it. Nothing more than that. I emailed Bob right then when I read that. And I said, do you have an email address for Joe? Because uh, I know him a little bit. And so Bob sent me Joe's email address. That night, I emailed Joe. And I just said, Joe, I'm so sorry to hear about your son. Uh, I didn't really know your kids at all. Um, I understand he's the fourth of your four kids. And I just wanted to tell you that you're in my prayers. And um uh, God bless you. So he email, emailed me back right then uh, as we went back and forth. He emailed me back. And at the end, this is kind of, again, like uh, divine intervention and benchmarks that I've had in my life. At the very end, he said, and maybe someday I'll see you in the broadcast booth. Well, I had no idea he was interested in becoming a broadcaster, none whatsoever. And at that particular point, Jack Morris, I had encouraged him with his second marriage and that eight-year-old son, Miles, to go back to Minnesota and spend time there and find a part-time job, but be with your son for the next 10 years. Don't lose him. So C.J. Nutkowski and Jeff Nelson had, uh, as former athletes, kind of had an interest in replacing Jack, but neither wanted to do any more than a half a season. I didn't want that. I wanted a full-time partner. So when Joe threw that in there, as far as maybe someday I'll see you in the broadcast booth, I immediately emailed him back and I said, how about now? Well, he told me later he's with his wife, Tamara, going back and forth with me on these emails. And Tamara said, Joe, (laughs) you have to follow up on this with Jerry. So give him a reply and say, yes, how about right now? Because as I found out later getting to know the family, it's a beautiful family. Joe wanted to spend four more years with Kevin in high school to help his baseball uh, career. And then after that, seek something in the radio booth. Well, now that had sadly come to an end. So uh, he said, how do I do that? And I said, um, I'll take it from here. So I emailed Don Collins, who was the head of Sportsnet. And I said, uh, Don, I've never heard Joe Siddle before. Here's the background. Why don't you have him on the sports show in the morning? Give him a 10 minute interview. Let me hear it. And I'll tell you what I think. He said, okay, the job is open with uh, CJ and Jeff kind of out of the picture full time. So within a couple of days, Joe Siddle was on the morning show on Sportsnet, the Fan 590. 
and I heard his six-minute interview. It was articulate. It was personal. It was comfortable. There were no I means, you know, uh, gonna, wanna, none of those. And as soon as the six-minute interview was over and they said to Joe, thank you very much, I got on the phone with Don Collins and I said, that's my partner. And right then, they reached back to Joe and said, would you like to become the Blue Jays radio broadcaster with Jerry Howard? And that started it. All right, Jerry, I'm going to let you take a deep breath and grab a sip of water for a second. As, okay. uh, as somebody who traveled a lot, you know the importance of a good night's sleep. And Sleep Envy is more than a mattress. And if you need that good night's sleep, I can't recommend Sleep Envy enough. Customize your mattress by taking a one-minute quiz. It ships in a box right to your door. Try it for 100 nights in the comfort of your home. Shipping is free. In the highly unlikely event you're not happy, they'll pick it up and you get all your money back. Use the code PRESSROW at checkout. That's P-R-E-S-S-R-O-W at checkout to get 25% off. In addition to your 25% off, they're contributing 10% of sales to feed the hungry during the coronavirus epidemic. Uh, go to sleepenvy.com. That's S-L-E-E-P-E-N-V-I-E.com and enter the code PRESSROW at checkout for 25% off. So I'm going to tell you a funny story. Uh, 1990, uh, I'm living in Burlington, Vermont, attending the University of Vermont. Hmm. And I was able to find you on the radio. Um, and I, I, I wake up one Saturday morning, and I'm a college kid, so you can imagine what that means about Friday night the night before. <laughs> I roll out of bed and I grab my Blue Jays hat and they were pretty good in 1990. And you could probably tell me exactly how good, but I, I don't remember, but they were good. And I ran downtown to a little diner called the Oasis Grill. You ever heard of the Oasis Grill? Uh, no. So I sit down at the Oasis Grill and I immediately get, the only, at the time, I didn't know it, but an older gentleman comes over and he says, where'd you get that hat? And I said, I'm from Toronto. Well, I, I suddenly had a friend for life. The guy who owned this diner in, in downtown Burlington, Vermont, of all places, his best friend was one Tom Cheek. There were, well, two, no. there were two pictures on the wall in the diner. One was of Bill Clinton in the diner during a campaign trail. And the other was of you and Tom and he. Oh. Guy's name, I believe, was Tibby. And no matter what, whenever I went into that diner, I assume, I understand that Tom at one point called University of Vermont Hockey. And I don't know, yes, if, that's he did. They, I don't know if that's where they met. But I'll, fast forward, I graduate, I have kids. I go to, back to Burlington on a road trip. And I, we walk in, this is like, eight, nine years after I graduate, and I sit down in my favorite seat at the, at the bar stool. I'm wearing my hat. He doesn't even turn around, and five minutes later, I have my order in front of me, and he says to my wife and kids, what do you guys want? But he, uh, you, you and Tom were an unbelievable duo. Um, you, you got the sense in listening to you that you were great on-air compadres. You were probably good travel partners, but in a little bit of Oscar and Felix, there was some salt and pepper, not that you didn't get along, but that you were different people with different lives, but you got along swimmingly in the booth. Is that how it was? 
That's exactly how it was. And um, uh, first of all, when I heard uh, that Tom not only worked in Burlington, Vermont, but when he moved up here to take the Blue Jays job, he moved into Burlington, Ontario. I kind of had to laugh with Tom saying, boy, you and Burlington get along pretty well, don't you? And he laughed and he said, yes, who would have thought that I'd be in Burlington in the States and Burlington here in Canada. But that's the way it was. I've often told people that, um, especially on the radio, uh, the best teams are the most opposite. And that starts with your voice. Tom had the big baritone voice, real deep. Mine was a little thinner, uh, more inflection. So whenever you had the radio on, you knew who was talking. Oh, that's Tom. Oh, that's Jerry. Tom, Jerry. And of course, I always kidded people too with uh, the cartoon that we grew up with. Tom was the big old cat. He was a big guy. I was a little mouse running around, so it kind of fit the image there too. But we, we knew that we were not former players. We knew that the fans just wanted to be informed and entertained about the broadcast. And we got along great in the booth. Why? Because neither tried to show the other one up. Neither tried to see how much they were going to share with the audience as opposed to their partner. No. We did it equally. And we had so much fun doing that, too. And we were able to laugh and have a good time. And I think the key, Jonah, was that it was never about us. It was about the game. And it flowed for nine innings, game in and game out for all those years from 1982 right on through uh, the middle of 2004 when Tom unfortunately got his malignant brain tumor and 16 months later had passed away. But Tom and Jerry, I was so happy to be a part of that. And honestly, um, had Tom uh, been healthy, which was exactly what we all hoped for, I was very content to do innings three, four, seven, and eight. And then my career as part of Tom and Jerry, that would have been perfect for me. Well, you certainly paid him the ultimate tribute in that first World Series game. Uh, I don't think there's a single broadcaster on the planet that would have done what you did for him uh, in the 11th inning, which was your inning, uh, passing the baton on, clearly shocking him in so doing. Uh, that was a, a clearly, that was one of the most selfless acts. I mean, again, I don't think another broadcaster will ever do that again. Well, I've always tried to, quote, do the right thing, end quote. And as it got to the uh, ninth inning, the Blue Jays really had it wrapped up. They had a two-to-one lead, game six, they're up three games to two. And uh, Tom Hankey, my favorite Blue Jay, he comes on to close it out. And don't you know, Atlanta scores a run. So it goes to the 10th inning, which was always Tom's inning. Then it goes to the 11th inning, which was mine, and we went every other inning. And on the top of the 11th inning, with two on and two outs, Dave Winfield doubles on the ground over third, two-run score, and it's four to two. So at the commercial break, I said to myself, Jerry, do the right thing. You got here in 1982. Tom has been here since day one. So when we came back, uh, and Tom was kind of, he, was, you, he had that forlorn look. He's sitting back in his chair kind of ashen, thinking, I'm not going to be able to do this. Well, when we came back. So we, uh, we had some tef- technical difficulties there. We are back. Jerry, I had asked you about the remarkable uh, gesture of you handing the baton to Tom. Um, you were mentioning that the, the Braves had gone up by one. You were able to call the, the romantic, if you will, Winfield double that put the Jays into the lead. You go into the break, and then what happens? 
Well, I realized right there, Blue Jays are ahead four to two, and I didn't come to the Blue Jays until 1982, and Tom had been there since day one. And I kind of glanced to my right, and I could just tell how disappointed and kind of sad he was uh, sitting back in his chair, realizing that it was my bottom of the 11th inning. So I've always believed in do the right thing. So when we came back uh, very spontaneously, I said, ladies and gentlemen, I've just had the pleasure of calling Dave Winfield's two-run double for the lead, four to two. And now here's my partner, Tom Cheek, to take you the rest of the way. Well, Tom heard that, and he just sat up. He was so happy. He went to the microphone. Thank you, Jerry. And he began to call the inning, ending up with Otis Nixon's bond up along first, Tim Linda Carter, and the Blue Jays are World Series champions. And honestly, uh, when I think back at his face and his joy and how happy he was uh, then and afterwards, I was so happy I did that. Uh, it was not only the right thing to do, it made for Tom's career, too, to be able to call that first World Series championship after what he ended up calling 4,306 consecutive games. Quite a sacrifice. So that was truly my pleasure. And uh, uh, when I called Winfield's two-run double and then later gave it to Tom, it turned out to be the best call in my career because it involved both of us. Well, it was, you know, it's funny. I've, I've read numerous times that you say that you felt that Tom was the Blue Jays fan because he was there from the beginning, that the wins were equally his wins and the loss were equally his losses. I, I, it's hard for me to believe that over all those years, you didn't too become a Blue Jays fan. Well, uh, actually, I did, but um, everything was a little bit different regarding, as I said, opposites on the radio make for the best teams. Tom was really the sophisticated fan. He loved the Blue Jays. There's no question about that. And he was there from day one, April 7, 1977, in the snow at Exhibition Stadium. That meant when the Blue Jays were winning, he was so happy. But if they would hit into a double play or make an error and lose a game, you could see his and hear his voice drop an octave. Well, that's exactly what the fans were doing. The fans were actually, he was reflecting what the fans were thinking and doing at the same time, covering their and his Blue Jays. Well, when I came along, uh, my career path was more objective. I still took great pride in being the broadcaster for either the Blue Jays or before that, Tacoma Twins, Salt Lake Gulls, University of Puget Sound Loggers. And you can still do that, but you can also not only be constructively critical, and proud of the team you're broadcasting for, but also highlighting the other team. And I've always been a believer that as a broadcaster, one of my strengths was to highlight the game and highlight the high points, no matter who made them, this team, the Blue Jays, or the other team, Boston, New York, it didn't matter. And I think because of that, uh, and with hello friends, and the Blue Jays are in flight, and call it to a double play, whatever those signature calls over time I was able to put on the radio, People knew Jerry was proud of the Blue Jays, and that's his team. But they also appreciated the balance in the broadcast, too, when I was objective. And many times on the air, Jonah, after a game, I would say, ladies and gentlemen, the Blue Jays did not lose this game tonight. The other team won it. Right. And um, that was the difference. And uh, I was able to then broadcast that way, still being me. Tom was able to broadcast being Tom. And you can tell uh, they say opposites attract. Wow, we, we certainly did. And it was so good for our audience to hear both of us come from the same game from different ends of the spectrum. So, you know, you, you saw the team from a performance standpoint. 
I'm not going to say it's lowest because I think the lowest, even though it was exciting during the first few years, they were pretty bad. Um, all the way to the World Series, you know, fall off the cl proverbial cliff again and, and come back um, to the playoffs and fill the dome again. Um, one of the issues, and you'll get this because you two were, although you're a Canadian citizen now, you were born in the USA, is the ability of the team to attract American talent as free agents. It is a different country. And, and while we love it, uh, and it has uniqueness to it, do you think we'll ever get through that barrier where if the team isn't uber competitive, um, they'll be able to sign free agents? Or is this just something we're going to have to deal with forever? Well, when, when this topic comes up, uh, I always think of one line. Winning is everything. Right. That meant Dave Winfield and Jack Morris said, hey, I don't care if they're in Timbuktu. They have a chance to win the World Series. I'm going to Toronto, Ontario, Canada. The next year, after winning the World Series, Paul Molitor and Dave Stewart said, I'm going to Toronto. I want a chance to win another World Series. So that became very obvious that uh, people like to go where they have a chance to put on a World Series ring. Now, having said that as well, um, as far as other years, uh, there are a number of free agents who come here, but the uh, actual platform itself has not been all that strong um, as far as winning a World Series. So you're going to get a few who will come, but the real megastars, when they're offered the same amount of money, where are they going to go? Uh, the New York Yankees or the Toronto Blue Jays or uh, doesn't matter who the Boston Red teams that have a chance to win it all. That's where they're going to go. So basically what I'm saying is it has nothing to do with Toronto or Canada. It has to do with winning. Right. So in the absence of winning, it's going to be a challenge to bring in top talent as free agents. Trading is okay. Like trading for Troy Tulowitzki was fine. Uh, trading for others if they're not in the thick of it or on the precipice of being in the thick of it, it's going to be a challenge being north of the border. Well, you just said something too, that many times on the radio I made reference to the real competition is not down on the field. It's among the general managers. And that's where the general managers, if they have the ability to acquire talent, you give that to a manager, he's going to win and there'll be free agents galore who will come here. How do I say that and put it in perspective? Hall of Fame general manager, Pat Gillick. He's the reason the Blue Jays won two World Series in 92 and 93. He is the reason. And after that, Cito did a great job as manager, but he had players as well. And the additions of those free agents, like I talked about. Now there's um, the big um, kind of barrier there where there's no general manager. Pat leaves after the 93 season. So all of a sudden, years later, after eight years of Gordash, eight years of J.P. Ricciardi, along comes this young man named Alex Anthopoulos. And all of a sudden, I personally began to see a young Pat Gillick. And sure enough, in the 2015 season, at the July 31st trade deadline, you made a casual reference to Troy Tulowitzki. Huh. Troy Tulowitzki, David Price, Latroy Hawkins, Cliff Pennington, the list is endless. Ben Revere, it goes on and on. And the Blue Jays are two games away from winning the World Series. In fact, the real World Series was with the Royals, and then the winner was going to play the Mets, and there was no contest right there. 
And sadly for me as well, uh, when Edward Rogers uh, with the Rogers uh, company in May of that 2015 season hired Mark Shapiro from Cleveland to become the Blue Jays general manager after the season was over, he didn't even have the courtesy to wait until Alex Anthopoulos was through with that season because Alex had grown into the job. All of a sudden, it wasn't numbers, it wasn't stats, it was your heart, your mind. What do you have as a teammate? What do you have as an ability in that clubhouse and on the field to make the team better? And now one of the best general managers in all of Major League Baseball is Alex. He goes to Los Angeles, they win two division titles. He's been in Atlanta, a team that wasn't even supposed to win 500, play 500 ball. They've won two Eastern Division titles. That's one that Edward Rogers let get away. And I say that because it has nothing to do with free agents coming here. It has to do with a general manager knowing his team, acquiring a farm system, then developing the farm system, putting it on the field at the major league level and adding to it. Nobody does that better today than Alex, and he's not here. That is so sad. Wow, I wasn't, uh, I was, I had another question, but uh, I'm going to ask it anyways. We're, we're going to back up and I'm going to come back to this point. Um, did you ever think that something you said on the air could have an effect on a general manager like Alex Anthopoulos and his ability to make a player transaction as apparently occurred then with, with Jose Reyes? Yes, uh, that kind of caught me off guard, too. Um, I've always been very honest on the broadcast, and um, I just got to the point where uh, uh, after the umpty-umpt time when Jose would let a ball go through his legs at short and then laugh and have the big smile, and the team was trying to vie for a, a division title, and they'd acquired these players. Um, you know, b Before they'd acquired those players, uh, they had a chance but here they were playing 500 ball and the most important position on the field is the shortstop. So I made some comments Sunday on the broadcast in Minnesota about Jose Reyes and I, I, I let it go. I said my piece and that was it. And then <laughs> uh, Wednesday morning of that next week, Dean Blundell had me on his show and I probably could have easily said, Dean, I've already addressed that uh, Sunday on the broadcast. I'm not going to go there, but the competitive side of Jerry and wanting the best for Mark Burley and everybody else on that team, including Josh Donaldson, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I just got a little bit too hot and a little too angry. And um, uh, I told it like it was. Well, <laughs> later, Alex, who became one of my best friends, he pulls me aside. And he says, Jerry, <laughs> I appreciate what you did, but because you made those comments and you were so not only determined that what you had to say, but to make that point and talk about Reyes. He said, Colorado kept calling me saying, what's with this Reyes story that I hear about? And uh, I didn't even realize that. I didn't realize the impact that I could make as a broadcaster making comments like that. But finally, Colorado made the deal bringing Tulowitzki and Latroy Hawkins here. Had they not, I would have felt awful because of what I did on the Blundell show for six minutes. But um, Alex was gracious enough to say, Jerry, um, that's what made it so difficult to do. But, um, yeah, that's, that's part of a broadcasting career, too, where you kind of get caught off guard, but you realize you were your own worst enemy in that situation, hurting a general manager trying to put that team right there in its final stages, which, fortunately, Alex was still able to do. Do you think there's anything that Mark Shapiro could have done differently or at all to retain Alex or I'll help you out here. I'll lead the witness. 
or was it toast because of what you said Edward Rogers had done? Well, let me compliment Alex this way, because um, first of all, the issue is with Edward Rogers. Mark Shapiro is a wonderful person. I know his dad in Baltimore. I've knew, known him for years. Ross Atkins is a wonderful person, the general manager. Now, uh, Mark is the president and CEO. Okay, so let's put that aside. They are wonderful people who know the game of baseball. But when Alex was running the team, he was the one. He was running the team uh, and making all the decisions. Now, Edward Rogers says, we have Mark Shapiro here, and what we will do, Alex, is offer you five years, $10 million, that's $2 million a year, to work really under Mark, and uh, you two work together. And much to Alex's credit, and this is where I really appreciate him as a person and always have, he turns down $10 million and says, no, um, I'm going to leave. Uh, because in essence, what he was saying was, it's not my team anymore. It's Mark's. And um, he went to Los Angeles and Atlanta in the last four years. He's won four division titles. So uh, I'm just going to leave it at that because um, when you turn down $10 million, you're saying it's not about money. It's about me doing the right thing for me. And that's Alex Anthopoulos. So I'm just going to push a little and say, if Mark Shapiro comes in and says, I'm replacing Beeston. I'm not replacing you, Alex. I'm going to sit in the ivory tower, if you will, and I'm going to work on the business side of things, improving the stadium, getting a new facility in Dunedin, and being your go-between um, between ownership and you. That's going to be my role. Would that have, could that have been worked differently? No, because why did Edward Rogers hire, hire Mark Shapiro? For one thing, to run my team, as Edward would say to him. There's a big difference right there. It wasn't you can just uh, be the business manager and Alex can continue. No, Mark, I want you to run the Blue Jays. That changes everything. Okay, fair enough. Um, you were a little bit of a pioneer in being one of the first to refuse to use team names, certainly in Cleveland and I believe maybe Atlanta. Mm -hmm. um, Both. Interesting discussion for today where we're sitting in the world on, on that topic. It, it's impossible for me not to compare um, the use of those team names with what's going on in the world today, although a different issue uh, specifically, but at a high level, it boils down to the same thing. As you watch what's going on in the world today, what, what, what is Jerry Howard thinking about that? <laughs> we don't have time for that. Um, you know, I just kind of sit back and um, wish it were better, um, wish it was more compassionate, wish it was fairer, wish it was more understanding, wish it uh, had all kinds of different uh, perspectives in it that uh, we're lacking right now. And um, I'll just kind of leave it at that because you, you could talk about that forever. But um, I was very fortunate after the 92 season when I followed like everybody else regarding Cleveland and Atlanta, and their nicknames and everything else. I won't go into it. I get a fan letter from a fan up in um, uh, the north. Uh, you know, as they say in the States, a Native American here, first a member of the First Nations. He writes me a most sincere uh, letter. And at that time, you got letters. <laughs> there was no internet or whatever. And uh, he said, Jerry, I love your broadcast. 
But when I hear you say this, that, and the other, and you make reference to the Cleveland mascot, et cetera, et cetera, it's just so offensive to us who live up here. And this is our heritage, and this is what we do. And he said, I, I just wish you would think about what you say in the future. I wrote him back right then, and uh, I said, that's one of the most heartfelt letters from a fan I have ever received. And because it comes from you and where you live and your background and your family history and how tough that's been for not only members of the First Nation, but Native Americans in the States as well. I'm going to say to you right now here at the end of the 92 season, for the rest of my career, I will not use those nicknames for Cleveland and Atlanta. And I did not. That was my way of saying too, to, to me, Jerry, do the right thing and respect that individual. And that's what I did. It's uh, remarkable, uh, to say the least. I watched two weekends ago the, um, the ESPN feature on Roy Halladay. I'm not sure if you've seen it. I think, the, I think they're called 60 or E60. Yes, I did see it. Did you have any idea that he was suffering so much through his career as you knew him? No, I did not. Uh, I love my friendship with Roy. We had it for better than 20 years. That included Brandy and his two kids, and uh, uh, that caught me totally by surprise. Uh, I also saw the competitive side in him and how hard he worked and flying those planes, and I, I saw a love for that. But I never, ever thought or dreamt that uh, he would be in that situation internally with all that he was doing and undertaking that then he would fly that plane right into the water. Um, no, that, that caught me completely off guard. I'm gonna, we're gonna wrap it up with one of my favorite Jerryisms, if you will. I'm hoping you can hear this, so, <laughs> so I'll play it loud for you. Because I'd be remiss if, if we didn't get to hear it one, at least one more time. All right. They're on their feet here, nearly 50,000 strong. One and one on Jose. Like the hair on my arm stands up listening to you make that call. <laughs> well, if you could see me right now, I'm smiling from ear to ear and, um, just quickly, as we, as we do wrap it up here, uh, that inning, the top of the inning, which included the controversial call by the umpire overruling his own uh, initial call of sending the runner, Rugnit Odor, back to third base, and then later letting him score the go-ahead run to make it 3-2, to two, and fans throwing on the field bottles and beer cans and everything else. From the top of that inning, from the first pitch, to the bottom of the inning, in the seventh inning there, and the last pitch, that one inning, Jonah, took 53 minutes to play. And because of everything that had happened, when Jose finally at the end of that inning made that dramatic swing, all I said after the ball took off for left field were five words. Yes, sir, there she goes. And I did it with emphasis because that was for the issues and everything that had happened for the fans. And all of a sudden, now they could – joyously express all their uh, cheering and desires and after Jose hit that home run and I said those five words I did not speak for better than 40 seconds and that was in deference to radio 
the fans coming across the, the radio as loud as they were. I wanted people across Canada to not hear me talk over that, but to feel like they were right there in the ballpark hearing that sound and saying, wow, look what just happened. It, um, aside from Dave Winfield's call, it's the, uh, uh, the second best call I've ever felt in my career that I really enjoyed the very most because of what happened, how it unfolded, and then the end result. Well, it's, uh, it was magical. And I will tell you that as someone who spends a lot of time on the road, I miss hearing it because the, the, with TuneIn Radio and XM Radio, it doesn't matter where you are anymore in the world. You can always tune into a game. And baseball is that one game that has that relationship between a broadcaster and the fan. And, again, you, you made it. Uh, you made it special and you made it personal and uh, doing it for 36 years with one team. Again, I don't think that'll ever be matched. I don't think it'll ever come close. Uh, I hope that, that you and the family stay well and really appreciate you doing this. I could go on for another hour easily <laughs> and uh, hopefully we can do this again uh, when the Blue Jays are, are circling uh, the series again. Well, thank you, Joan. I appreciate it. Um, I also uh, want to say here to wrap it up, um, Joe Siddle's one of my best friends. He and Tamron, of course, their kids, Brett and Brooklyn, Mackenzie and Kevin. And uh, a thought to Kevin up there. I know he's smiling. And uh, God bless the Siddle family, too. I'm so happy to be a part of them and Kevin. And thanks for having me on. It's been awesome, Jerry. Please stay well. And uh, hopefully we can speak to you again soon. All right. Thanks a lot for having me. Take care.